you guys ever noticed how bad and misleading movies are at interpreting heaven? You guys ever noticed this? It always is kind of the same imagery, white, right? You got the, the white clouds, you know, someone's usually off in the distance playing a harp of some sort. And then sometimes there's the pearly gates, right? And those are kind of everything that we know, or at least the movies portray about heaven. But the truth is, you guys, that the Bible actually gives us several glimpses into what heaven is actually going to be like. And it gives us these very detailed visions through different prophets throughout the Bible, looking into heaven, or we'll see, you know, these small glimpses from the prophets, um, just seeing like a part of God himself in the heavenly realms. Now, all the way back in Genesis 28, we're told that Jacob saw angels ascending and descending with God standing above. So just picture all this. In Exodus, we see Moses asking God to show him his glory on the mountain. And God gives him a glimpse of his back. And then in Isaiah 6.1, we're told that Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his heavenly throne with the hem of his garment filling the temple. So all throughout Scripture, both New and Old Testament, we're given all these details of what heaven will actually be like. But the greatest glimpse, you guys, that we're given is found in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation. And it's from the writer John, who was one of Jesus' disciples. And so I'm going to go ahead and ask you guys, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the last book of the Bible. And we're going to be looking at Revelation 4 and 5. But before, guys, um, as you turn there, before we get into our text, I want to just remind us of a couple things. And that's that for the last several weeks, um, we've been unpacking some of the fundamental questions um, around who Jesus is, the identity of Christ. And we've been answering some fundamental questions um, around his identity. And up until this point, um, all the questions that we've been asking um, have really been focused on who Jesus says that he is which is truly God, all-powerful, and the only way of life. But tonight's final question, guys, is a little bit more tricky because it actually presents us with a paradox. And paradoxes are something that we do not like. We don't like the mystery. It makes us uncomfortable. We're like, just show me the path, God, so I can just follow it this way. And if I get off, just nudge me back, right? But scripture is not that black and white, guys. We're about to see why. And honestly, I think it's one of the most incredible things about God's character and who he is, is this mystery surrounding God. Now, because um, how often do we try to um, try really hard to put God in a box? How often do we try to put God into a box, right? As if he's just something that we can just add on to our lives, right? Like everything else, he's just an addition. And we'll do things, at least I do, where I'll do things like I'll try to compartmentalize God, right? God, how are you going to fit into my story? How are you going to fit into my schedule? But what I want us to stop and recognize tonight, guys, is that God is not some puzzle for us to figure out, but he's a person that we can actually get to know, Okay. So, we're going to be looking at two titles given to Jesus. And honestly, they seem polar opposite to one another. Now, the question that I want us to consider tonight is this. And it is whether Jesus is the Lion of Judah or 
the Lamb of God. Now, if he's both of these things, what does that actually mean to us? Why does that matter for our lives? What are we to do with that information? So, guys, if you have your Bibles, um, turn to Revelation 4.1, and uh, we're going to do something that we don't normally do, and we're going to read a big chunk of Scripture. This is something at Ecclesia we do on Sundays. Um, Jazz up some Bibles in the back if you need one, guys. And we, uh, we read through the in the ESV, so that's right. Wait a minute, Jazz. So... Um, I do want to warn you guys, uh, these verses can be really strange, uh, especially as we just dive in. Um, they can be difficult to wrap our heads around, but I believe that God actually has something really profound for us um, tonight, so I'm really excited to jump in. So, grab a sip of water. Because it's still reading, but here we go. Revelation 4.1. And it says this. It says, after this, I looked. Now, this is John writing. He says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and then the third living creature with the face of man, and last, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the fourth living creatures, each of them with six, four living creatures, each of them with four wings, uh, where six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to stay. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their stones before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. So what the heck is happening? Right. So John, you guys, who's writing this text, now a little bit of context, he's been exiled to the island of Patmos, where he receives this vision from the Lord, right? This glimpse into the throne room of heaven. And he sees a door standing open in heaven. And then he hears this voice telling him to come up here, right? Where he says, with 24 elders and four living creatures praising the Lord God Almighty. Now these four creatures are singing and declaring God to be holy, 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 over and over and over again, day and night. The elders fall down in worship, and then they cast 
There's the crowns before this throne. And they start singing of God's worthiness. They say, worthy are you, Lord. And God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, what we see, guys, in this next chapter, in chapter 5, is the really important detail that I do not want us to miss. Um, and so, this is the scroll in the land. I'm just going to jump in and go to read it. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth under or under the earth could open this scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to even look inside then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Don't mess this place. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had, given, had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out onto all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. And this is key. And they sang, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Almost done. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped. When was the last time you guys read that much scripture in one sitting? It's been a minute, right? Now, this vision, you guys, is not only one of the greatest glimpses that we actually have into these heavenly realms but it gives us one of the most profound details about Jesus' identity and who he really is. Look at verse 6 again. It said, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. What is he talking about? Now, a quick note about these strange seven, um, seven eyes and seven horns. Um, if you've never read, first off, 
any of Revelation. Um, this book of full, is full of these kinds of details um, about the end times and what it will be like when Jesus returns. But this detail about just the seven horns and the seven eyes is simply pointing to the strength and the power that this lamb had. Because typically, right, we don't normally think of, of lambs as having any sort of strength, right? They're these weak creatures. And then what we see next is this lamb takes the scroll from the hand of God himself. And in verse 8, the four creatures and 24 elders of heaven, who had declared the worth of God Almighty, they fall down and they sing a new song. So they don't just keep singing what they were singing before. They sing a new song. And they declare the worth of this lamb. And then John says that they start singing, right? They start singing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And so forth. And we jump to verse 11. And John hears the voices of thousands of angels, two minute account, and they all join in a song together. And this anthem, worthy is the lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I don't want us to miss this, you guys, um, because what we're seeing here is that what started with heaven declaring the worth of God the Father has now completely shifted to praises being sung of this lamb-like lion of Judah, this lamb that was slain. Now, this lamb-like lion is, of course, Jesus that we're talking about. This is who they are praising, who they're, now their song is shifted to praising him. So not only is Jesus this majestic lion, though from the royal tribe of Judah, who we're told will one day, you know, come again um, in strength and power to judge humanity, um, to punish his enemies, but he's also the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God. Now the implications of this, guys, are so profound. Because as this lamb-like lion, he's self-giving, he's sacrificial, right? Taking away the sins of the world by laying down his own life that we might live. In Matthew 11, this is one of my favorite verses. We see Jesus even describing himself as being gentle and lowly. Which is just another word for, for being humble. He's this gentle and lowly, lamb-like king. And that verse reads, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find a rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So unlike the kings that we read about um, or talked about you know, in the previous weeks, this King Jesus is anything but unapproachable, right? This lamb-like king, he's kind. We're told that he's gentle. And he gladly welcomes us into his loving presence. He welcomes us in as his own sheep. And he's not like most kings, right? This is not who we're reading about. He doesn't build these ornate, insane kingdoms, you know, to keep everyone else out. But this king who's from the royal tribe of Judah. He throws, rather, a royal feast, right? And he invites all of us to come to the table, to enjoy a meal with the king, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah. 
Now, I don't know about you guys, but every time I read this, I'm like, God, why the heck did you choose a lamb of all the creatures that you could have associated yourself with? Why a lamb? Why would the creator, right, of a stinking universe associate himself with such a lowly creature? Now, during uh, Jesus' day, and even before he even came on the scene, the Jewish people at the time ascribed to what was called the temple system, as some of you guys may know this. In the temple system, the priests would bring an unblemished lamb and offer it as a sacrifice to God for people's sins. It was the same for the Israelites in the Old Testament with the tabernacle, where the only way that people could receive forgiveness was by way of this kind of sacrifice. Now, this form of worship all fell under what we would call this first covenant or this old covenant, right? Where God demanded certain means and ways to worship him. Where there were all of these rules and ways of preparing these places of worship in order to actually please God and enter into his actual presence. But then Jesus comes onto the scene, right? Everything changes. And instead of the continued need of this animal sacrifice, Jesus himself says, I will be that lamb. I will be that sacrifice. Once and for all. And through this sacrifice, we're given a new covenant, right? Hebrews 9.15 tells us, Therefore he, come on, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And again, in Hebrews 10.14, it says, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, by Jesus sacrificing himself once and for all, you guys, as the perfect lamb, spotless and blameless. And by going to the cross and dying, he secured eternal redemption for his people once and for all. So from this point on, you guys, no other sacrifice to be made to add to or take away from the finished work of the cross. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, he rescued us from the penalty of our own sins by taking the full weight of sin and death by dying on the cross. Right? That's good news. Now, what makes Jesus also the line of Judah? Right? This is the other question that we're considering. How does him die as this sacrificial lamb equate to him also being this royal, roaring lion that we know that he is? And to answer that, you guys, we have to, I think, look at what kind of lion that Jesus is. Because we definitely don't see him going around flaunting like a lion, do we? You guys, Jesus was able to conquer as a lion because he was willing to act the part of a lamb. Okay? He was able to conquer as a lion because he was willing to play the part of a lamb. And I want us to, to consider this for a second, that when we read about Jesus' time on earth, one day, you know, Jesus is driving out thieves in the temple like a lion. I love that this is what 
break you and I talked about today. Jesus, when he's on the scene, he drives out the temple. And then one day, he actually gives himself over to be slaughtered like a lamb. John Piper says it this way. He says, Jesus, the lion, gets the victory through the tactics of the lamb. So Jesus, both fully God and fully man, defeated death and reigns in victory as the lion of Judah because he was willing to sacrifice himself as the lamb of God. Now this glimpse, you guys, into the heavenly throne room that John gives us here in Revelation 4 and 5 is so important because it reveals both the power, right, and the gentleness of this Jesus. Now, what the heck does all of this mean for us, right? As we seek to become more like him, as we strive for Christ-likeness, which I think most of us here are trying to do. I believe that God is calling us to embody these same character traits. So what would it look like, look like for us to live sacrificially like the Lamb? What would it look like to live a life devoted to serving one another? You know, my, my wife and I uh, were really challenged by this a few, uh, few years ago in our previous community group. Um, we were walking through the study together um, from this older couple, and they, uh, they mentioned that cliche question, right, that we all, we all ask of all people. How do you do it? You know, how did you make it this many years or this far? Um, but what they said, you guys, was actually really profound, and I think it applies to way more than just romantic relationships. And they said this. They said the secret to any successful relationship is learning to out-serve and out-sacrifice one another. Okay? The secret to any successful relationship is learning to out-serve and out-sacrifice one another. And isn't this exactly what Jesus himself is calling us to? John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. 1 John 4, 19, We love because he first loved us. But then, some of you might say, well, Zach, if I'm pouring out, right, and no one else is pouring back into my life, no one else is actually reciprocating that love that I'm pouring out, and we all know what this feels like, right? What am I supposed to do then? Right? If we sacrifice our time, our energy for someone else, we expect them to reciprocate most of the time, don't we? But you guys, if that really is the case, where we feel like we've been given, like we've given all that we can give to someone else, and now we're depleted because we've just emptied ourselves, then guys, I think that we are relying on the wrong wells to draw from, Right? We are relying on the wrong wells to actually nourish us. We are getting our affirmations. We're being filled up from all of the wrong things. Because honestly, guys, why are we surprised when humans act like humans? Right? We hurt one another. 
We mess up. We forget to say thank you. We forget to return the favor. But God is calling us to something so much greater. We have to learn to let God be our only source of nourishment. To be the one who is constantly filling us up when we pour out. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. He says, God cannot give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is none. We will never be fully satisfied by anything else, you guys. The only way that we can be, that we can truly live sacrificially like the Lamb of God is to regularly turn to him to fill us, right? We're called to be a sacrificial people as Christ followers. We're willing to lay down whatever means necessary to love one another well. Whatever the cost. Because that's what Jesus did for us, right? As this lamb-like lion, it cost him absolutely everything. And you guys, our world doesn't make it easy, does it? And tells us that we deserve these things, right? That we deserve to be happy. That we deserve some sort of reward or accolade or pat on the back. Especially when we give up our time, right? We give up our resources to serve one another. But you guys, we were never promised these things in this life. John 16.33 tells us this. It says, in this life, you will have troubles. But take heart, for I, Jesus, have overcome the world. You guys, why do we think that we deserve anything? When we read these, this truth, right? When we meditate on these truths, why do we think that it's going to be different? Why do we think that the world has something else to offer? It doesn't. One of my favorite pastors he defines grace this way. He says, grace is simply love without contingency. Think about that. Grace is love without contingency. Meaning there are no strings attached, right? So I'm challenged by this and ask, oh God, is this, is this the way that I love people? Am I living to out-sacrifice my wife, my friends, my co-workers? Believing that the ultimate sacrifice was already made, right? It's done for. It's finished. You guys, I'll close with this. It's, to be a sacrificial people means that we are willing to lay down whatever it is that we have as a sacrifice of praise to the only one who is worthy to be called the Lamb of God in the line of Judah. Verses like this in, in Revelation, these, these glimpses into this heavenly realm should get us excited, you guys, for what is to come. It is what we should be hopeful in, is heaven. A time is coming when there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. But even more than this, you guys, at the center of all of it, of this just incredibly 
detailed, elaborate, beautiful story, there will be Jesus. And honestly, when we're, when we're face-to-face with him, when his face comes into our, our focus, just imagine this. When his face comes in our focus, there is nothing else that we'll be able to do than just like these elders did, which is to fall at his feet and worship him. 